Hi, everybody. I'm Rick Newman, and joining us today is Caitlin Myers, an economist at Middlebury College, who organized a group of more than 150 researchers who filed an amicus brief in the abortion rights case the Supreme Court is likely to rule on within weeks. That brief focused on the economic benefits of women having access to abortion, and we know from the draft opinion leaked earlier this year that the court seems likely to overturn Roe v. Wade and allow states to ban abortions, as some have already started to do. There would be significant economic costs to this, and Professor Myers is going to help us understand what they might be. Caitlin Myers, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I want to start by just reading one short passage from the uh, amicus brief in this case. Uh, it says this, the financial effects of being denied an abortion are as large or larger than those of being evicted, losing health insurance, being hospitalized, or being exposed to flooding during a hurricane. You're basically saying that an unwanted pregnancy is a major disruption that can take uh, years to recover from economically, right? That's correct. So tell us, tell us about some of the research that went into this brief. So the, the result that you're describing is one from a study that I think is particularly compelling. It's called the Turnaway Study, and it was conducted by a group of social scientists who followed um, hundreds of women as they approached U.S. abortion providers. And when they got there, some of those women were discovering that they were just past the gestational age cutoff to obtain the abortion and were turned away, while others discovered they were, they were under it and obtained the abortion that they wanted. So what's particularly compelling about the, the study of financial outcomes for these women is the researchers are able to link the women to their Experian credit reports. So this isn't a subjective self-report. Um, and in addition to having a subjective evidence, we can get this evidence for these women long before they ever experience the unintended pregnancy. And what we see in the data is that for both groups of women leading up to this pivotal moment in their life, their financial circumstances look quite similar. And it's at that moment when they approach the provider and some are turned away and some aren't that you see this sharp divergence and this tremendous increase in financial instability for the women who are turned away. In fact, there's about an 80% increase for them in the probability of an adverse financial event like a bankruptcy. When this happens, do these, um, do these women and these families uh, recover economically? I mean, do they get back to where they might have been otherwise? Or is this sort of a permanent um, quality of life setback? Well, it really depends on the outcome that you are looking at. And, and also I'll caution that particular study is so recent that we haven't been able to follow these women for decades after, right? We haven't been able to, to see yet what happens. But we do have evidence from a lot of other contexts, including the Roe era, that suggests that the answer is um, yes, to, to both, yes, some of the impacts are short run and yes, some of the impacts are more permanent. And so just to expand on that a little bit, um, some of the financial instability that these women experience, it is severe, it can last for years, but also we do see some evidence of recovery, particularly as um, uh, about five years out. But then there are other components of the shock, for instance, shocks to the probability that these women complete their desired education, that they finish high school, that they finish college. Um, that they enter a professional occupation, those shocks appear to be much more permanent. Um, and they can have long run effects on the probability that women live in poverty. Right. And uh, I believe uh, about half of women uh, who get abortions are already uh, living below the poverty line. Is that is that about right? That's correct. So this is already a particularly vulnerable population. About half of the women seeking abortions already live below the poverty line. 
more than half of them are already mothers. Um, I'll also mention, by the way, even for those who are living above the poverty line, um, many are still low income, they're still financially fragile, and they're already experiencing disruptive life circumstances. They're reporting that they've just lost a job, or they're behind on the rent, or they've just broken up with a partner in quite large numbers. And so that shouldn't surprise us because seeking an abortion is not a random event in somebody's life. These are women who are saying, I'm in a really tough spot. I do not feel prepared to parent an additional child. And so the fact that they're already vulnerable just further supports the finding that we see very consistently in the economic literature that when they don't get the abortions they want, their economic lives suffer. So, uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has linked access to abortion and to reproductive health care in general to uh, higher labor force partici participation rates for women. Uh, what do we know about that? Yeah, we know quite a bit. Um, and I believe Secretary Yellen was was referring to the, the Roe era. So um, 50 years ago, when abortion was legalized, the United States afforded social scientists uh, a quite nice, what we call a natural experiment. We had a situation where five states and the District of Columbia legalized abortion first in advance of Roe. And then the rest of the country followed with Roe. And that allowed us to see what was happening in the states that legalized abortion at the time they legalized abortion compared to the rest of the country. And also I'll mention what happened in states near them because interstate travel was also a, a, a major phenomenon. And then when Roe was decided, we could kind of see, okay, so did the, West, the rest of the country when they follow suit with legalized abortion, do we see women's lives change? And the answer is yes. The evidence from that era is overwhelming. The legalization of abortion, first of all, dramatically affected the ages and circumstances under which women became mothers. It reduced teen motherhood by about a third. And then it had downstream effects on women's lives. It resulted in increased high school attainment, increased college attainment, changes in the occupations people were entering, changes in labor force participation. It was a major factor in uh, narrowing gender gaps in the 70s. So let's say the Supreme Court goes ahead with what it seems likely to do, which is overturn Roe v. Wade from 1973. That would not ban abortion nationwide. It would just mean that uh, states now can pass their own laws. And it looks like about maybe half half of states would have um, some kind of abortion ban. Um, does, does this suggest that we would get, at some point over time go back to the way it was in those states with um, lower educational attainment for women who cannot get an abortion and, and, and some of the things you just described? The answer is yes. Uh, and the answer also is it's complicated. So in some ways, this is a return to the pre-Row era, but I would caution that it's a return to the pre-Row era in kind of the 1970 to 1972 window, a very narrow window, when abortion was legal in some places and not others, and interstate travel matters. So what we're predicting is likely to happen if Roe is overturned now is, as you said, about half the states will ban, about half the states probably won't. I mean, you know, obviously there's some uncertainty with these types of predictions. We have a really good idea of how women will respond to the resulting changes in travel distance. And our best prediction based on ample evidence on the effects of travel distance is that about three quarters of the women who want abortions will still find a way to get out of the states that ban. And what we're really talking about is about a quarter of women in those states who can't they will disproportionately be 
the poorest of an already poor and vulnerable group. And all available evidence suggests that they will experience substantial disruption to their lives, substantial deterioration in their financial circumstances, um, reductions in the probability they can finish their educations, they can enter jobs, and that they can provide stable support for their families. So yes, it is going to impact women. I would also say that the most likely scenario is one of dramatic increases in inequality because it's going to impact a very specific subset of women, poor women in the banned states. So going back to what we know from that time period around 1973, um, are these economic effects substantial enough to actually show up in aggregate data or is this mostly just personalized to the individuals affected? Yeah, my best guess is we're not talking about an aggregate shock to GDP or gender gaps nationwide. And that's not because abortion doesn't matter to these outcomes. It's because we're not talking right now about a national ban. And so knowing that people are still gonna travel, our best guess is that in aggregate, the national abortion rate is probably gonna decline by somewhere around probably 10 to 15% as a result of the ban. That will have a really substantial effect on the lives of the women who aren't able to obtain abortions they want. But also I think in those circumstances, it's probably not gonna be like a macroeconomic shock. But I would caution, I would, I would, I would add a note of caution my answer would be really different if we were talking about a national ban. Yeah, um, I, I, I'm wondering uh, when, when you filed this brief, and I think you filed this in the original Mississippi case, uh, which is now the one that's at the Supreme Court, you filed this last year. Did you, have you gotten much response to, to this? I've gotten a lot of response from economists uh, who, first of all, signed on in droves. It was so actually uh, relatively just straightforward to, to, to get 150 economists signing on. They knew that the evidence that was presented in the brief is really mainstream, largely accepted in the profession. And I've gotten a lot of notes from people in the profession um, thanking me for helping to get what we know out there, helping to speak up when we haven't before. What's been more disappointing is the lack of response from the Supreme Court. Um, in oral arguments in the case, Justice Roberts uh, was, was questioning the lead attorney for the Center for Reproductive Rights about exactly these questions, whether there's evidence that women have come to rely on abortion for shaping their lives. She began to point them to the economist's brief. She began to outline the evidence there. And Justice Roberts interrupted her and said, OK, setting the data aside and just moved on to something else. Uh. And it was a moment, um, I don't want to set the data aside. I don't want to set the evidence aside. I understand that there are questions that economists are not qualified to weigh in on, questions about personhood, uh, questions about constitutional law. But we know a lot about this fundamental question of whether abortion access affects people's lives. And I, I want that evidence to matter. And so far, the court that seems to have disregarded it. So there's at least one countervailing argument that I've heard, uh, and there are probably more than that. Um, of course, this is a complex moral issue, and we're just talking about the economics of it. But um, the uh, uh, more uh, so, if we if fewer women get abortion, we in theory will have um, stronger population growth, and stronger population growth correlates with stronger economic growth. So that's a uh, you're rolling your eyes a little bit. So tell, <laughs> yeah, tell me, tell me your reaction to that. 
Well, I'm going to say, I think my reaction should be one of an economist, particularly because I just said it's not our role to weigh in on ethics, but um, I can't help it. And I'm going to anyway. What is the limit of such an argument? Like I tend to find when people compare our current situation to The Handmaid's Tale and Gilead and Margaret Atwood, I tend to think like, oh, that's overwrought. Let's not talk about it that way. But that type of argument is, is an argument that people should be having children to benefit the economy. And what is the limits of such an argument? Should everybody just have as many children as possible for the purposes of economic growth? Is Does anybody truly ethically believe that's a, a valid argument for limiting women's reproductive autonomy? I understand there are other valid arguments, but from an ethical viewpoint, this one just seems unsupportable to me. And then, okay, if I could, if I could set that aside um, and be an economist, this isn't gonna have that level of shock because women are gonna travel. Um, so what we're going to see is not a major macroeconomic shock to productivity because women who want abortions, many are still gonna get them. What we're gonna see is a shock to poverty and inequality for poor women, black women, young women in the deep South. And so I really think that should be the focus um, because I don't expect a macroeconomic shock. So let's say the Supreme Court does overturn Roe and as expected, about half of the states then um, put severe limits or outright bans on abortion. Let's say you care about this poverty shock that you've just described, and you're a governor, you're a policymaker in those states. If you have abortion bans in those states, what else should you do to create the, uh, I don't know, the, the social infrastructure or the uh, programs that will support um, these women who will, uh, you know, we're going to have additional women having babies. What do they need and what should governments be doing to support them? We've got good answers to these questions, and I hope that they can motivate evidence-based policy that everybody, regardless of their stance on abortion, can get behind. What we will see is poor, vulnerable women, many of whom are already parenting, having children that they do not feel prepared for and suffering financial shocks as a result. What policymakers can do is, is support poor children and poor families. Our social safety net is tremendously frayed. These women are facing extremely expensive childcare costs, lack of access to childcare because of their schedules, and really low, for instance, um, welfare uh, benefits in most of these states. And what these states should be doing is shoring up um, all policies that not only support working parents, but also support poor women at moments they might not be able to work. It's really difficult to work as a poor woman with a newborn when you lack childcare. And so rather than supplying welfare benefits that are, they're $220 for a family of three in Mississippi monthly. It's not enough and they need to supply more. They also need to expand Medicaid to provide medical services to poor children, support Head Start, support childcare subsidies. There are things that we can do that are good for children in general and that can help begin to mitigate some of these effects. We may be talking about this for a long time, so uh, we will get back with you for some further insights. Caitlin Myers, Middlebury College, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me.